Hello and welcome to this extra episode of Opposition Cast, an emergency episode uh, responding to uh, the latest news from Westminster, where those of you who have been following it uh, may have seen that there has been uh, quite a controversy raging uh, since last week about the proposed appointment by Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, uh, of a former senior civil servant. Uh, that senior civil servant is Sue Gray, somebody who became extremely famous during uh, the Partygate investigation into the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the holding of uh, parties during lockdown. Um, she has quit the civil service. She was the former um, head of propriety and ethics at the Cabinet Office, uh, after which uh, she became the second permanent secretary at the Department for uh, Leveling Up. Uh, and she's quit the civil service uh, in order to take up this proposed appointment as the chief of staff to the leader of the Labour Party, uh, the leader of the opposition. And perhaps uh, understandably, uh, this has caused something of a stir at Westminster. Um, a number of Conservative MPs very unhappy about uh, the appointment um, and others raising um, questions um, about the uh, impartiality of the civil service uh, and its perceived impartiality um, as a result of this proposed appointment. Um, as I speak to you, there is a debate going on in the House of Commons um, in response to an urgent question uh, posed by the former Conservative Lord Chancellor, Sir Robert Buckland. Um, and uh, here is the exchange um, between him and uh, the Government Minister, the Cabinet Office Minister, the Paymaster General, uh, Jeremy Quinn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Will my right honourable friend, the, the Paymaster General, make a statement on the impartiality of the civil service in light of the proposed appointment of the second permanent secretary of the Department for levelling up housing and communities as Chief of Staff to the Leader of the Opposition? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I can confirm that following a media report the previous day, uh, Sue Gray formerly Second Permanent Secretary at D. Larkin at the Cabinet Office, resigned from the Civil Service on Thursday the 2nd of March. This resignation was accepted with immediate effect. On Friday the 3rd of March, a statement from the Opposition announced that the Labour Party had offered Sue Gray the role of Chief of Staff to the Leader of the Opposition. The House will recognise that this is an exceptional situation. It is unprecedented for a serving Permanent Secretary to resign to seek to take up a senior position working for the Leader of the Opposition. As honourable members will expect, the Cabinet Office is looking into the circumstances leading up to Sue Gray's resignation in order to update the relevant civil service leadership and ministers of the facts. Subsequent to that, I will update the House appropriately. By way of background, to inform honourable members, there are four pertinent set of rules and guidance for civil servants in relation to this issue. First, under the Civil Service Code, every civil servant is expected to uphold the civil service's core values, which include impartiality. The Code states civil servants must act in a way that deserves and retains the confidence of ministers. Secondly, for very senior civil servants, rules apply when they wish to leave the service. Permanent secretaries are subject to the business appointments process, which for most senior leavers is administered by ACOBA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. They provide advice to the Prime Minister, who is the ultimate decision maker in cases of the most senior civil servants. 
Once the Prime Minister has agreed the conditions and the appointment is taken up, ACOBA publishes the letter to the applicant on their website. The business appointment rules form part of civil servants' contracts of employment. The rules state that approval must be obtained prior to a job offer being announced. The Cabinet Office has not, as yet, been informed that the relevant notification to ACOBA has been made. Thirdly, civil servants must follow guidance on the declaration and management of outside interests. They are required, on an ongoing basis, to declare and manage any outside interests which may give rise to an actual or perceived conflict of interest. Finally, the Directory of Civil Service Guidance states the contact between senior civil servants and leading members of the of opposition parties should be cleared with ministers. Having set out the relevant rules, Mr Speaker, let me finish by saying that, regardless of the details of the specific situation, I understand why members of this House and eminent commentators outside have raised concerns. The impartiality and perceived impartiality of the civil service is constitutionally vital to the conduct of the government, and I am certain all senior civil servants are acutely aware of the importance of it being maintained. Ministers must be able to speak to their officials from a position of absolute trust, and so it is the responsibility of everyone in this House to preserve and support the impartiality of the civil service. The Cabinet Office Minister, Jeremy Quinn, there, uh, responding to the urgent question this afternoon in the House of Commons about the proposed appointment of Sue Gray. Um, And he said some very interesting things there, I think, um, including what has been widely reported uh, about the fact that appointments of this nature, of any senior civil servant leaving to take up a post outside the civil service, having to um, pass that appointment through the uh, COBA uh, process, the appointment on business uh, appointments, um, which is currently chaired by the former Conservative Cabinet Minister uh, Eric Pickles. Uh, usually they uh, will comment to the Prime Minister and uh, issue advice on the propriety of commercial appointments if someone is in government and wants to take up a position in an area related to um, their responsibilities that they previously had in government. Uh, they might recommend a, a cooling-off period of uh, three months, six months, uh, sometimes as long as uh, a year or two before they can take up those positions in order to ensure that their privileged access to government information doesn't uh, improperly um, influence the way that they are able to do that job commercially. Um, Now this is of course rather different because the concern is not about commercial advantage, uh, it is about political advantage. Sue Gray uh, as a senior civil servant, not just because she was a, a permanent secretary, one of the, the leading figures in, in government departments, uh, but perhaps more the fact that she was um, a cabinet office um, uh, official for a very long time. She was the head of propriet- propriety and ethics in the cabinet office. And of course, famously, um, in that role, uh, was asked to oversee the investigation into the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson over the party gate um, Uh, allegations, uh, the fact that um, parties were held uh, in number 10 during uh, lockdown. That issue, of course, is highly politically charged, not least because the House of Commons Privileges Committee is currently um, about to uh, issue its um, 
uh, report and uh, and take evidence um, from Boris Johnson on on that issue. Um, so allies of Boris Johnson are calling foul and saying this throws uh, doubt on the impartiality of uh, Sue Gray when she conducted that investigation. So a highly politically charged uh, appointment, um, this um, this one by uh, Sir Keir Starmer. Um, and uh, it's worth saying as well, before we um, go back to the House of Commons and to uh, that debate that's going on this afternoon, um, one of the issues um, which was touched on there by Jeremy Quinn in his uh, answer there uh, was about um, the potential contacts that may have taken place between Keir Starmer and the opposition um, and Sue Gray while she was a civil servant. Um, And that's a question which uh, was put to Keir Starmer um, on the radio this morning um, on LBC when he was asked several times uh, when the approach uh, was made to Sue Gray. When did you first approach Sue Gray to be your chief of staff? Uh, uh, Nick, on the, I know her personally, I met her when I was director of public prosecution. She was obviously a senior uh, civil servant. I met a number of them. I was really, really impressed with her. So I've known her personally since then. She's not a friend. I don't mix with her. I'm not in the same social circles or anything like that. Um, she's, I know her personally in the sense that if I saw her at a reception or something, I would go over and have a discussion mm. um, with her. But as I say, I actually haven't had a discussion with her during the entire time she was doing her report. Might I ask thought, when you first approached her well, to be your chief of I've staff? I've been on the lookout for a chief of staff for a little while now I'm very clear what I wanted in that um, and obviously you know Sue will set out that but nothing improper um, at all um, I've been on the lookout for a chief of staff I'm really pleased um, that people of her caliber are interested right. um, in that um, but you know so when did you approach can I ask when you approach Sue Look, um, if I may call us, I've been looking for a chief of staff yes, for, yes, a n- I, for a number of weeks now. I think October 2022, Sam White left you. If I've got well, that that's when I lost when, when Sam White moved yeah, on. At that yeah. stage, the first task I had for myself was being clear in my own mind what I wanted from a right. chief of staff because I was beginning to think about how so to do So I will try again, and obviously, you don't have to answer, but yeah. when did you first contact Sue Gray about the possibility of becoming? Your uh, chief of staff. Well, Nick, that's going to be laid out by Sue. She's got to do that as part of a um, leaving procedure. But there's nothing improper um, at all. But you can't tell me that. Nick, nothing improper at all. I've no, been no, looking... no, but you can't tell me when you first approached her. Uh, that's Nick Ferrari on uh, LBC this morning, um, grilling uh, Sir Keir Starmer uh, about the uh, proposed appointment of Sue Gray. And uh, it didn't end, end there. He, he asked a couple more times. Um, and as you could hear, um, Keir Starmer was not willing to say when um, he first approached um, Sue Gray, um, saying that uh, um, she would lay that out. Um, and so, as we've just heard in the House of Commons um, from uh, the Cabinet Office Minister, um, it is a requirement uh, for senior civil servants to report uh, any contacts they might have had with um, the opposition uh, to ministers. And so I think that's uh, something we're going to be hearing um, a lot more about as to exactly uh, how that contact was made um, in the time that Sue Gray was uh, preparing to to leave the civil service. So that's the, the, the political row. Um, before we move on to um, discussing um, some other aspects of this, um, let's just go back to the House of Commons. Uh, I quite like this sort of live um, <laughs> reportage that we're doing. Um, go back uh, to the House of Commons, not live because you're listening to this on a recording, but uh, let's go back to the House of Commons and hear from the deputy leader of the Labour Party who uh, took part in that urgent question uh, response. Uh, this is what Angela Rayner said uh, in response uh, to the uh, the urgent question. Thank 
Thank you, Mr Speaker. And I'd also like to thank members opposite for asking why a senior civil servant, famed for their integrity and dedication to public service, decided to join the party with a real plan for Britain, yeah. rather than, Mr Speaker, a tired-out, washed-up, sleaze-addicted Tory government. Yeah. This is the exceptional circumstances that the Minister spoke about. A party so self-obsessed that they are using parliamentary time to indulge in the conspiracy theories of the former Prime Minister and his gang. What will they ask for next? A Westminster Hall debate on the moon landings, the Bill of Dredging the Loch Ness, or a public inquiry into whether the earth is flat? The biggest threat to the impartiality of the civil service is the party opposite. And decade of debasing and demeaning public standards in public life. And they talk about trust, Mr Speaker. This debate says more about the delusions of the modern Conservative Party than it does about anything else. Angela Rayner there, uh, in her response uh, to this urgent question about Sue Gray. Coming out fighting there, um, and as uh, the minister said in his response, uh, concluding perhaps that uh, attack is the best form um, of defence. Now, that debate uh, then continued uh, on the urgent question. Um, Many Conservative MPs, it has to be said, uh, wanting to have their say. Um, uh, Fewer on the uh, opposition side, uh, a few Labour MPs um, intervening. Um, But uh, a similar theme coming up uh, in all the contributions from um, Conservative MPs about the concern over the impact of this appointment on perceptions of um, the neutrality of the civil service. Uh, the impartiality of the civil service. Uh, there might be a question there about um, uh, whether those two things are the same. I saw some people debating that on Twitter recently uh, about neutrality versus impartiality, but we won't go there for the moment. That seems to be the uh, the tone of the debate, uh, overlaid, as I say, with a lot of um, uh, focus on Sue Gray's role in the Partygate um, investigation. Um, so I think we'll we'll leave the uh, the live sort of political row um, about that for the moment. Um, I'm sure that's something we might return to in future. Um, but I just wanted to um, comment briefly on um, the actual substance of the appointment. If it is given the go-ahead under whatever conditions uh, a COBA decide to uh, place Sue Gray under, whether that's a, a bit of gardening leave uh, for the next sort of six months or uh, or, or, or longer, uh, or perhaps even shorter, perhaps even a, a three-month um, gap, whatever conditions they might choose to impose, or whether uh, they might choose to rule it out completely. As we heard um, from the Minister, that's something they uh, also have the ability to do, um, potentially. Um, if the appointment does go ahead, um, it will be an interesting one, um, because Sue Gray is somebody who, as we've heard, has a lot of experience within government. She knows uh, the way Whitehall works uh, and has been uh, at the heart of government uh, for many years. So the question really is, I think, are those skills going to be useful to Keir Starmer? And why is it that he was so keen uh, to appoint uh, somebody uh, of that uh, standing in the civil service rather than uh, a sort of long-standing Labour Party Uh, supporter or a more seasoned political operative? Well, I think the obvious conclusion that we can draw from that is that uh, this is um, a leader of the opposition who has concluded that he is preparing for government. And if you look at the opinion polls, that certainly seems to be a reasonable conclusion uh, to draw, that the Labour Party 
is certainly very well placed uh, to fight the next general election and to uh, potentially win it. So if you're looking to enter government, then you perhaps want somebody as a senior advisor um, who knows their way around government and can advise um, on those issues. And and this is not entirely unprecedented. Uh, We're hearing that this is um, something which is notable because uh, of the seniority of, uh, of Sue Gray. But we have seen in the past uh, examples of uh, former civil servants um, going to work for political parties and indeed for the leader of the opposition. The most obvious example um, of that was Jonathan Powell, who was a diplomat, a senior diplomat in the uh, Foreign Office. He worked at the embassy in Washington for a time and he left the Uh, diplomatic service, the civil service, to go and work for Tony Blair in 1994 as his chief of staff, and of course uh, then went into government and became chief of staff in number 10. So that is a a precedent that that we can draw, that uh, Tony Blair was looking for somebody who uh, had experience within government, a slightly different uh, form of experience, but certainly somebody who uh, knew their way around the official world. Um, And that is... um, particularly important when you have a party that's going into office um, having not had a huge amount of experience uh, of government, as was the case with Tony Blair after 18 years in opposition. There were very few, if any, uh, of his shadow ministers who had ever been in government um, previously. Um, And if you look around the current shadow cabinet table, uh, after 13 years in opposition, there are also very few members of Keir Starmer's top team who have been in government. There are a few. Uh, there's uh, Yvette Cooper, the Shadow Home Secretary, who's been a, a cabinet minister before, but many of them uh, have never uh, been so much as a junior minister. And so having somebody uh, who has been a senior civil servant, and not just uh, any senior civil servant, but knows their way around the cabinet office and the way that government works at the very centre, is of course extremely useful uh, for Keir Starmer. And I think some of the focus of this this row at Westminster about Sue Gray um, is really sort of focusing on something which perhaps is um, is not so much of a direct concern, which is the, the idea that uh, in some way she, um, she was uh, biased or that she is going to uh, use secrets that she's, she's learned um, in government about government policy or, or ministers uh, to benefit the Labour Party. Um, those are all concerns that I'm sure will continue to be discussed, but I think the the more valuable thing for Keir Starmer and for the Labour Party is her more general experience, the fact that she knows how the machine operates uh, and that she will be able to um, operate um, in that way uh, and instill within the opposition and within the Labour Party some of the awareness and structures um, of government so that they can start thinking like uh, an opposition. And if you think about the, the way in which... Uh, number 10 and government um, operates with a a professional civil service class of administrators supporting them. One of the biggest problems oppositions uh, complain of is that they don't have that uh, support, they don't have that Rolls-Royce system that is supporting them in uh, doing their job. Um, And if you insert someone of the calibre of Sue Gray into that uh, machine, then you certainly do have an equivalent of that running the show. And so um, as much as her uh, specific experience of particular issues and, and policies might be um, of uh, sort of day-to-day political value um, uh, were she to make use of those. Um, I think it's her general um, awareness and uh, knowledge um, of, of running 
government departments and and how the machine operates that uh, Keir Starmer will be uh, particularly keen to to draw on. Um, And of course, uh, as has been mentioned during the course of the debate, uh, and the minister also um, said, any civil servant going to work anywhere else is still bound by confidentiality. And so um, if, uh, as many people have accepted Sue Gray as a person of integrity, um, she would not improperly use uh, anything that she learnt specifically in terms of her government service um, for any new employer, whether that's the leader of the Labour Party or anyone else. Um, whether certain Conservative MPs um, choose to accept that uh, assurance is uh, is another matter. So what is the job of being uh, Chief of Staff to the Leader of the Opposition? I think that's a good place to, uh, to go to now. Um, and uh, you may have heard on previous episodes, we've spoken to a number of people who've done that job. Um, and so I just want to highlight a few of, uh, of those interviews that we've done um, by playing you a couple of clips. Um, so um, let's uh, start with uh, one of the earliest that, uh, that we spoke to. During the 1980s, uh, Charles Clark was uh, chief of staff to Neil Kinnock uh, when he was leader of the opposition. And uh, uh, one of the uh, questions I uh, put to him during that interview uh, was about this sort of imbalance between the resources that the government has, uh, and which, of course, Sue Gray will be very used to um, having at her disposal uh, across the whole of Whitehall, um, and the rather more limited resources that you have um, in opposition. And I, I asked Charles um, whether that was a uh, rather an unfair comparison between the resources of government uh, and those of opposition that uh, presented challenges uh, when you're trying to run that operation. Very much. It was always very difficult. On the other hand, I personally preferred a relatively small office to the much larger operations, which after Tony became leader of the opposition, became characteristic uh, and exist to this day of much larger and better paid people. Um, And I thought we gained something from the relative smallness uh, of the office, though, as I said verbally, and you just confirmed is what I was writing, there were a number of resources that we needed to have to deal with the various issues that came along. Um, But I didn't, uh, I don't think I saw it really as us against the government in quite that sense. We, the the amount of money, the short money uh, that was available was always less than we needed. um, And that was a continuing factor. Um, But uh, I never felt myself that we should be doubling, trebling, the number of people that we had, because actually one of the challenges of political management, if you've got a large operation, and you can see it today in some circumstances, it's just different people talking uh, to the media and others in a way which it's very difficult to keep hold of. Mm. There is an argument, I suppose, from from what you said there, that, that the job of opposition is different to that of government. You're not running the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not having to uh, deal with uh, some of the practical issues that that, that running a government um, requires. You are essentially um, just deciding what to say or what to um, um, what to uh, develop as policy. So it is a different job. And and do you think that being more nimble as an opposition is a potential advantage that you lose if you over sort of bureaucratize it? I do think that, and and I was not in favour of making it very large in that kind of way. Um, And I think it's a way that politics has developed, which isn't particularly helpful, the increased sizes of what happens. And you're quite right when you say we're not running the country. 
Um, on the other hand, there's a lot of basic stuff that we you need to do on any kind of briefing. If you just take, I don't know, the leader of the opposition's response to the budget, for example, which is done on spec immediately without prior notice of what's in the budget, the economic strength that you have to have in the office is significant and needs to be there in a in a in a big way, um, and so there are there's an irreducible minimum really of what you need uh, if you're meeting um, a string of uh, overseas leaders who are significant, then you need to do it. Neil went to Moscow two or three times as Chernenko and Andropov died to the funerals, and making sure you're uh, fully equipped to be able to know the ins and outs of all that. That's not a governmental function, but it's nevertheless quite an important function of opposition that you can play those kind of roles. So um, uh, I, I, I agree 100% with your nimbleness point, but that doesn't allow you to shrink right down to a very small position. And uh, it's not just about words, it's about briefing for that wide range of different circumstances. Charles Clark there talking to me a couple of years ago uh, about uh, when he was chief of staff to the leader of the opposition, uh, Neil Kinnock. And uh, some interesting points, I think, from that, um, uh, which are relevant to the discussion today about the fact that running the opposition and the leader's office is a very different job to um, organising a government. Um, And so there perhaps are some challenges to people who are coming from Whitehall into uh, that sort of more political operation, if they are used to having that uh, large bureaucracy, um, the need to be more nimble and to have a a more streamlined operation is perhaps something which the opposition benefits from, um, and which might be a bit of a culture shock uh, to people coming into the job. Um, So those are his thoughts. And we spoke to a a number of other uh, former um, staffers in the leader of the opposition's office, um, and uh, the the next one I want to um, mention is uh, Tina Stoll, now uh, Baroness Stoll, uh, who we also interviewed for the podcast. Um, and uh, she spoke to us about a very different uh, time in the opposition's existence, that of uh, the period immediately after or shortly after a landslide general election defeat um, and having to sort of pick the party up and uh, and try and get some kind of organisation going. Um, it's a different sort of point in the cycle to that that perhaps we're looking at with Labour at the moment, uh, where expectations are increasing that they will be entering office. Um, not the case under William Hague uh, in his leadership of the opposition between 1997 and 2001, which is the time when uh, Tina Stoll was working for him. Um, she was uh, his... Uh, Deputy Chief of Staff, um, or I think Deputy Private Secretary, um, various different titles that she had. Uh, But I think it's fair to say, as we were saying to her when we had the interview, uh, that she was really the linchpin of of that office. Um, And there is also um, a a sort of parallel with the the Sue Gray situation, in that uh, one of the things that uh, Tina revealed in that interview was that one of the reasons that William Hague uh, and his Chief of Staff, uh, Seb Coe, wanted her to go and work for them to help organise um, the office and the the uh, opposition at that time was because of her experience having worked in government. She had uh, worked in Number 10 as an official uh, during John Major's government uh, and that was experience that uh, she felt uh, was useful to her and also uh, to William Haig uh, and his team uh, when she went in uh, to help organise the office. Um, I think, I mean... 
one of the reasons why I think um, William and Seb asked me to join the office was because I had worked before in number 10. Mm. And, and uh, you know, as you've probably been told as well by sort of, you know, some of the people who have been ministers and then found themselves um, uh, in opposition. Uh, I mean, after, after 18 years of government, you know, there was, I mean, people were pretty shell-shocked, you know, by the sudden lack of support and infrastructure around them. And, and I think that, you know, whilst, um, uh, you know, William uh, would have been sort of, I guess, like you say, so, you know, they would have been sort of managing in whatever kind of setup they had. Um, I think, you know, part of what, um, you know, I, part of my kind of um, task, as it were, was to bring some sort of real order and discipline to the office and to, uh, and to run it in a way that was, uh, you know, reflected, you know, sort of the importance of the role, you know, as leader of the opposition and, and leader of the Conservative Party, but but also, you know, because I had, I, I knew what it was like, you know, to to run something and, and and run it well. So it was it was it was muddling along, but it 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 still needed quite a bit of sorting out. Um, mm. So. Um, yeah. And and you you said that um, part of the reason that Seb approached you was having that experience in in Downing Street it is quite striking that you know after that it's almost a um a kind of um reflex of of some people sort of in, in opposition after that that length of time in government that they want to replicate the structures that they're used to in government um, and that certainly seemed to be one of the things that influenced the the way that William set up the office um in, in a sense it it looked as though he was recreating a, a ministerial private office that you know there was a there were just systems in, put into place which I assume were the systems that you put into place um of things like you know having a <clears throat> um, a sort of a ministerial box essentially. Um, I think it was Alan Duncan who uh, who commissioned yes. a, an actual ministerial <laughs> box for the leader, um, and that that was one of the things that you know replicated the the, the daily um, schedule of submissions had to be in by five o'clock on the dot, and then the box closed, and then the leader took it home to do his box over, over overnight, and just those sorts of structures which very consciously seem to replicate government. Yeah, I mean I think um, so. You know, I mean, William was somebody who had himself been, you know, a cabinet minister and a minister before that. So, um, you know, he he was familiar with that kind of um, support around him. And, um, uh, and you know, and it's it's also worth bearing in mind, William himself is a very orderly person. You know, he likes he likes order and, he, he, you know, and, and he responds well to that. Um, so um, and I think, you know, whether or not you you. Um, you know, adopt a, a private office type approach or another, you know, when it comes to just making sort of the machine work, it's as good a, it's as good a setup as, as any other, but, you know, different to a ministerial office, certainly at that time was that, you know, you had much more sort of political input, you know, than, um, than would have been sort of before. I mean, uh, I mean, when I, when we, when, I mean, if you remember at the time of, uh, you know, Blair's uh, arrival as prime minister, there was a, you know, a sudden increase in special advisors. Special advisors had existed in the past, but not at the, you know, to quite the same degree. And, and I, you know, and I, th I think, you know, ministers and the prime minister had relied much more on the civil service as their sort of, you know, support than, than, than political advisors. Whereas, you know, as leader of the opposition, I mean, I don't know, 
whether it had been like this right from the get-go, but, but certainly when I arrived in William's office, our main base was in central office. So we would, we would transfer to the House of Commons uh, uh, you know, at lunchtime on Mondays to, certainly Mondays to Wednesday. I, I can't remember what we did on a Thursday, but, um, um, but uh, and, and, you know, we had in central office the sort of, you know, political sort of support, um, which was, very integral to you know the leader's office um i mean i you know i i think that i mean in my in my mind you know the research department and the press office um and everything in in central office was was an extension of the leader's office you know it, it wasn't it didn't feel like it was um uh, there was a lack of sort of political sort of input or a, or a lack of sort of sense of you were operating in a political environment, uh, even though we were sort of running the sort of tight bit of, of the leader's office in a, in a sort of quite a structured and, and, and formal way to a certain extent. Yeah. Tina Stoll there talking to me about her role uh, in William Hague's office as leader of the opposition um, and uh, a fascinating uh, insight there into just how uh, explicitly uh, they modelled that on the processes of, of government um, and uh, the fact that her experience in government as an official uh, was of use to the opposition in uh, helping to organise it. Um, so some real contemporary uh, resonance there. Um, and finally, uh, we spoke to Kate Fall, who was the Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron when he was Leader of the Opposition, uh, working very closely with his Chief of Staff, Ed Llewellyn. And the two of them then went into government in those roles, taking on the jobs of Chief of Staff and Deputy Chief of Staff uh, for David Cameron um, in government. So she has a, an interesting perspective on this, of having seen uh, that transition from being in opposition into government. Um, and uh, one of the questions I put to her was, when you are in opposition, whether it is... Uh, important that the operation that you're putting together um, and running there, just as we spoke to uh, Tina Stoll about, whether that uh, operation really um, needs to be um, working effectively to give you credibility that you are an alternative government. Very important. I mean, you you have to have a well-managed operation. And as Ed and I, we sat opposite each other for 11 years in the end, and we were very much a team, we sort of boxed and cocks between us. And a lot of the, I mean, the, obviously in number 10, you were helping the Prime Minister run the country, which is a sort of, not, not a small additional part of the job. But in opposition, you are running a complicated political campaign. You are firefighting, you are running a, a good operation, you are strategizing. So some of the similar um, lessons for number 10 there and it is a complicated job you know you've got policy issues you've got strategize you've got speeches to make you've got to be flight of foot you up against a huge operation which is government and you have to be able to know the government's doing Monday announcements we're going to jump up on Saturday you know and in some ways, you're more agile because, of course, you don't need to push all that policy through cabinet. You can, you know, get up and say what you think. But also, it, the weight of those years falls very much on the leader of the opposition. So, and, you know, like the number 10 role, you also have to keep the relationship strong in shadow cabinet. And people have less staff. So you're all, you know, in a way, you're closer together. When you go to number 10, what happens, there's a sort of diffusion while not only do all the officials come in and, and run in a way, 
you know, parallelly with you in operation. But you also have the shadow cabinet become cabinet and go to these massive, you know, departments with all the people around them. So it, it's very much tighter and in a way more sort of more intimate, I suppose. Kate Fall there, um, reflecting on her experience running the leader of the opposition's office and uh, a theme that we've um, heard right from the beginning from uh, Charles Clark uh, onwards is that uh, whilst you might have some of the uh, characteristics of government that you might be trying to have uh, a well-oiled machine that uh, operates effectively to serve the leader, it is a very different job and there is that political dimension to it. So Um, As uh, Tina Stoll was saying, uh, you have the press and research functions of the party plugged into uh, the uh, leader's office um, and that very heavily political dimension to that. Uh, We heard there from uh, from Kate Fall about the fact that uh, you have a much tighter operation um, and that uh, you don't have the problems that are perhaps caused by um, departments of state taking ministers uh, away and uh, and uh, interrupting those relationships, um, but uh, as she said, you know the ability to be more fleet of foot and to be more nimble as a, an opposition is a theme that we heard uh, from Charles Clark at the beginning um, as well. So quite a lot to think about there um, in relation to the uh, Sue Gray appointment. Uh, clearly, somebody who brings a huge amount of experience from Whitehall. Uh, and of the official machine, and is a a sign, I think, that uh, Labour and Keir Starmer want to be seen as a government in waiting. Um, But there are still, I think, some question marks, uh, not just around the political row and the uh, issues around um, the perceptions of uh, impartiality in the civil service, but I think there are also questions about um, the role that, uh, if she does take it on in the leader's office, um, whether um, that role of being chief of staff, which uh, in some ways is uh, is a very important political linchpin, whether that's a role um, that someone who has been a career civil servant is necessarily best placed to do. Clearly there are parts of that role which uh, it's very important uh, to have that administrative experience, but uh, it is by its very nature um, still a political role um, in the leader's office there. So a really interesting one to watch. I'm sure we'll come back to it. Um, but I must say, um, on those interviews, uh, if you subscribe to the podcast, uh, do go back and listen to them in full. They're fascinating interviews uh, with those three people, uh, with Charles Clark, with Tina Stoll, uh, and with Kate Fall, along with all of the other people who've been guests on the podcast over the years. Uh, we will be back at some point. I'm never going to promise again uh, when we're going to be back, because um, uh, with uh, various uh, considerations uh, thrown into the mix, not least um, the mountain of uh, of books and chapters and writing and things that I really should be doing at the moment. Um, I can't promise uh, to be able to uh, return to regular podcasting, um, but we are going to try and we are um, certainly inviting guests uh, to come and contribute um, and to try and record some more um, uh, editions in the future. Um, but I'm not going to promise you when that's going to be. You'll just have to subscribe and then, as if by magic, when we have a new episode, it will pop into your uh, your podcast feed. Um, but I hope you enjoyed um, hearing from some of those people um, who have done the job of running the leader of the opposition's office. Uh, We are, as I say, going to try and be a bit more topical uh, when we do have an episode. And so over the weekend, when we heard all of these rows about Sue Gray, I thought this is definitely a candidate uh, for an emergency podcast. Um, And I hope you found that interesting. 
Uh, looking at the clock, we're just coming up to 40 minutes, which is a nice round number, so I'm going to stop there. But uh, thanks very much for listening. Do make sure you're subscribed. Uh, give us a good rating uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, and I'll see you again whenever we record the next edition of Opposition Cast. You've been listening to Opposition Cast from the Centre for Opposition Studies, presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector, and you can find us on Twitter at Opposition UK and online at oppositionstudies.net. Mm-hmm.